Well, if you'll open your Bibles to Galatians this morning, Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to read our section just to get us started. I'm going to read more than I'm going to preach on, so don't get nervous with that. But somehow, Galatians 5 has uh, fit hand in glove in my mind in terms of what I think the Lord has put on my heart in connection to the triumphal entry of Christ. So listen as I read uh, verses 16 through 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Well, I'm going to approach this uh, section this morning for your edification in light of the Christian calendar that we hold here, especially in the Western Church. Uh, Palm Sunday is this morning, and Jesus' triumphal entry is perhaps on our minds. My plan is to bring a message on next Sunday, uh, Resurrection Sunday, in light of this passage as well, the fruit of the Spirit, the resurrection life. On Good Friday, which is this coming Friday, I want to talk about what it means to crucify the flesh in light of the crucifixion. So I'm going to try to keep in step with our religious calendar, but I'm mainly following, I think, the lead of the Holy Spirit as he's guiding me through the text in Galatians chapter 5. Jesus' triumphal entry was one where he came in, as we read earlier, on the foal of a donkey, and he came in not as a political ruling king, much like was being lauded and sought after by the Jews for them to have a king overthrowing the Roman Empire, but he came in as the servant king. Their shouts, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, was by and large um, less sincere and more superficial. It was a desire to see an outcome take place more pragmatically than spiritually. Jesus' desire then, and as it is always, is for us to accept Jesus in our heart by faith, believing in Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords who supersedes all ruling nations and authorities, who becomes Lord of our lives in our hearts. This is King Jesus, he desires for us to believe in him and have a genuine saving faith. Jesus' kingdom comes in the hearts of believers. It will come in the future in the millennial kingdom, I believe specifically where he will set up rule and reign in Jerusalem, ruling on David's throne as the ultimate fulfillment of David's kingdom. Finally, Christ will create the new heavens and the new earth, reigning king of kings, Kings and Lord of Lords, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord, proclaiming that. These verses here, though, if you'll notice, serve as a genuine test to see if you are authentically in Christ's kingdom now or will inherit it in the future. And specifically, verses 19 through 21 are a very, very clear and marked test for kingdom citizenship. If you look at the end of verse 21, those who do such things listed here will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who are marked by this dark black catalog 
will not inherit the kingdom of God. Holiness now is a mark of future holiness in heaven. Filthiness now is a mark of not being fit for holy heaven. It's as simple as that. Now, we've been learning about the warfare that goes on in the heart of believers. Believers have the flesh as an old nature, that which is not yet redeemed and glorified. And then we also have a new nature. We are new creatures in Christ. You as a believer have the Holy Spirit dominating and ruling in your life as the sanctifier of your life. He's bringing you from one level of glory to another, as 2 Corinthians 3.16 says. You are on the march of sanctification and Christ-likeness. You're not perfect, but you're being perfected. And as one person put it, it's not the perfection of your life, it's the direction of your life. In Christ, you are becoming more like Christ because the Holy Spirit is dominating and ruling in your life, even though the sine wave is up and down and up and down, it is trending upward because he who began a good work in you is what? Faithful to complete it until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we war against the flesh as Christians, this unreconciled antagonism that lives inside of our unredeemed humanity. It's there And God's word, nevertheless, though it doesn't require sinless perfection, it does set the standard for holiness. And we are so thankful for the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. The Holy Spirit is mentioned seven times here in this section. And false teachers in this context historically were trying to distract Christians from following the lead of the Holy Spirit, following the walk of the Holy Spirit. They didn't want people to keep in step with the Holy Spirit or follow the gospel of free grace. They wanted people to follow the law and follow ceremonialism and follow legalism, that which can only constrict spirituality, that which can only discourage and dampen Christian living. Ultimately, if you give yourself completely over to a law-based gospel, you have no gospel at all, you have no Christ at all, and you have no assurance of your salvation, you could be under a curse, meaning not headed to heaven but hell. As we look through this first list, the works of the flesh, I want you to be especially attuned to that which is there. I don't want you to disregard it because it is so strong. It is so reprehensible. Don't think that it doesn't apply to you. Oh, this list is just for unbelievers, the reprobate, those who are not attending church this morning. Don't do that. That is a temptation to your own self-righteousness. Use this list as a mirror for examination because all of us have the flesh and we all need to test ourselves to see if we are not yet redeemed. Only when you test yourself in this way can you see what is still active and alive in you in your flesh, and then you can truly only yield to the help, which is your capital H helper, the Holy Spirit. Well, let's look now at this black, dark catalog. This catalog reads in a way that is broken down perhaps into four categories. We have no idea whether Paul intentionally broke this list out into four categories, categories of lust, idolatry, witchcraft, temper, and appetite. We're not sure of exactly what he was thinking when he wrote this list. He wrote several lists in the New Testament. If you've read your New Testament, you know this. Ancient literature used to make lists like these. Well, so did Paul. Romans 1, 29 to 31, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, 2 Corinthians 12, 20 and 21, Colossians 3, 5, Ephesians 5, 3, 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 5 are examples. Again, the notes are always posted online this week, so you don't have to feverishly write all those down. Peter has a list, 1 Peter 4, 3, and Jesus' list in Mark 7, 21 and 23 are all lists that are similar lists describing the sinfulness of sin that resides in everyone and yet is dominating unbelievers and is subdued for those who are in Christ. Well, the deeds here are sins of indulgence, sins of bodily craving, sins of worship, of false gods, sins where people are attempting to harness supernatural powers for selfish ends. They're sins of self-centeredness. It's a harrowing 
list. It's a sobering list, the works of the flesh. They prove who's being led by the Spirit, who's not being led by the Spirit, who possess grace, who do not possess grace. Paul's boiling it down, saying no matter how religious you are, if your life is made up of these sins, you are not alive to God. By the way, did you notice the source of the sins? The source of the sins are from within. They are the works of the flesh. They're the works of the flesh. They're what's inside. And Jesus sinless makes this so uh, evident. Jesus was correcting the Pharisees' wrong interpretation of the law. He was correcting it to his disciples. And he was saying it's not what goes into a person's stomach that defiles him in terms of dietary laws, but it's what comes out of the heart. Mark seven twenty one. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. They're from the inside. We need to contend with this picture, who we really are as sinners. And to contend with ourselves in this way is very, very countercultural. Our world around us tells us not to do this, tells us not to think this way. This is contra-wise to the messages of our culture. The world is saying that you are basically good. The Bible is saying you are basically born very, very bad, very, very evil. And there's two views here that, that go against each other. Humanism says you're born morally good, you're born morally neutral. The Bible teaches the opposite. The doctrine of sin is saying that we are inherently corrupt, all of us, in every aspect of our being. Not every aspect is as horrible as every other aspect, and not every manifestation comes out in our lifetime in the same way that it might in others, but the dark DNA is there nevertheless. It's why you children, when you come to faith in Christ, you might be regenerated and born again in a way that subdues certain sin categories from making their full manifestations, but the DNA that you repented of was all really there Nevertheless, humanism says social reform and housing and transportation education, uh, changing jobs and medical care will solve this problem. None of that will solve the problem of the dark, sinful DNA that lives inside of us. The unbeliever um, has a normalcy to this list. These are normal behaviors. These are continual behaviors. These are continual attitudes that manifest into actions in the lives of unbelievers. For Christians, these happen, verses 19 to 21, happen in your life, but they are abnormal. They should be marked as interruptions in your Christian holiness and sanctification, never the norm for those who live by the Spirit. All right, well, let's begin by walking through the works of the flesh, and we're going to look at the sins, first of all, of lust. The sins of lust... Reading this list, you probably will resonate with Paul's introductory words. He says, the works of the flesh are evident. They're evident. They're obvious. They're obvious to ourselves and as we see these works of flesh in other people's lives. They need no explanation. They're not ethereal. We don't need a spiritual guru to tell us what is a work of the flesh versus a work of the spirit. In one sense, these verses, these words preach themselves. Paul is not working in generalities. Paul uses his words here. These sins, as one person put it, have names. They have names. They're fundamentally concrete. They're public often and private sometimes. Galatians 6.1 says we're to restore people if they're caught in a trespass. That means that we can observe trespasses in people's lives and sin patterns that are works of the flesh where they need restoration. They're evident. Verses 21 and 23 is where Paul uses it and etc. here. He says that uh, this list in one sense is not exhaustive. It's more suggestive. Verse 21, those who do such things. Verse 23, against such things. In other words, there's a whole bunch more sin lists that he could have created here and given more sin names for people to repent of, but he just cut it off at a certain point. 
Paul's point is that believers need to know with clarity the difference between living in the flesh and living in the spirit, walking by the flesh or walking by the spirit. Another way to interpret evidence here or them being evident is the origin of these flesh sins. And we've talked about that already. The origin is not from without, but it's from within. A lot of times private sins or secret sins are taking place, but for the believer, they're evident to him or her. You know when you've been in the flesh. The Holy Spirit is convicting you and revealing in you these sin categories that are live in your life. The temptation can be to blame other things, blame circumstances, and even to indirectly blame God for tempting you or testing you or putting you to the test when something pops out. James 1.13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. The point is the origin of your sin is you, not God or what God allowed to happen in your life. It's you. We're all obligated to repent of these things in our lives. We're responsible. 2 Corinthians 12.21, he begins in the same way that he does here in verse 19. These terms, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, they're paralleled in 2 Corinthians 12. The Corinthian church was dealing with the same sins. Paul said of them, and such were some of you. They were dealing with the temptation to not relapse into these sins. And I think that the Galatians were dealing with this same temptation. These were common in the Greco-Roman world. And you remember, this is Lower Asia Minor. These are Gentile Christians in a Gentile community. They were coming out of a world that's a lot like our Western culture today, where sensual sins are normalized, where there's a desensitization going on in our culture. And you know this from media, from radio, from the internet, from your phone, from whatever device you have. There is a bombardment of these sins of sensuality that are just pervasive and come at us with reckless abandon. The Greco-Roman world is being reborn in the 21st century. This is a vice list that concludes in verse 21 with orgies or revelings. So the sins of self-gratification bracket this list, and I don't think by mistake, these are the sins of self, opposite from loving your neighbor as yourself, opposite of what verse 13 says, becoming a slave or a servant of one another. These are the selfish sins of the heart, a craving that can never be fulfilled through the lust of the flesh. They're the sins of the world. It's why Paul is addressing this so potently, even to the church. Why is he talking to the church, by the way? If these are the sins of the world, why is he talking to the church? He's talking to the church because the church, by and large, is delivered from these very graphic sins. These are sins that the church is familiar with, sins that are temptations that are dangled before church people, Christian people, who are tempted to relapse into these same sins. As I said before, 1 Corinthians six eleven, the Corinthian church have been pulled out of this. Many of you have been pulled out of these kinds of sins. And he said, such were some of you. He's trying to curtail temptation here. That's what a list like this is for. Well, the first word here is the Greek word for porneia, the Greek word porneia. It's the widest application possible. Sexual immorality, it includes everything, indulging in adultery, premarital um, relations, homosexuality, bestiality, incest, prostitution, lewdness, a lack of restraint. It's the indulgence in sensual sins with married people, or with unmarried people, fornication and adultery. It's the appetite of our culture, and it's the broadest term Paul could use to categorically counteract open, shameless sin. The modern-day Internet pornography is rampant. Be not deceived. It's out there, and it is predatory. Pornography in the Internet. That's what this is talking about. It's talking about all of the categories of sensual sin. The second category is impurity. This is the Greek word akartharsia. Think of that word cathartic or cleansing. This is to be unclean or not cleansed, non-cathartic. Ephesians 5.3 and Colossians 3.5, Paul uses the same term. It's a general term for sexual malfeasance. It's uncleanness and unfiltiness of the heart where someone is 
defiled. In the Old Testament, when someone was defiled, they were ceremonially unclean, right? And there were measures through the ceremonial law where people would wash themselves to symbolize their repentance. Well, in the New Testament, there isn't ceremonial washings. It's the washing of the heart. The washing of the Holy Spirit happens when you are saved. It's through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. But as you live the Christian life, you should seek cleansing again and again and again, as 1 John, 4, 9, um, 1 John 1, 9 says. If we confess our sins, what? He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's an ongoing process of going back to our Heavenly Father and saying, Lord, cleanse my heart again. You are cleansed positionally, but ongoingly for the relationship of Christ to grow, you seek that kind of repentance and cleansing. It's an uncleanness and filthiness of heart where someone is defiled. When someone is given over to this kind of sin, this kind of impurity, everything they see is dirty. Titus 1.15 says, To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Defilement and filthiness. Paul uses this over and over again, nine times in the New Testament, Romans, 2 Corinthians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians 4, 7. This is the will of God that you would be sanctified, that you would not be given over to impurity. Well, the, the next word is sensuality. Sensuality. You see that there. It's another common word for sexual sins. All of these are grouped together. These are grouped in terms of debauchery or an open recklessness and contempt. It's flaunting itself in the face of God. The church should not be named among a list like this. The church needs to be a place for refuge, a place for holiness, a place for safety, place where you can go outside of the world's influence and hear a message regarding God's holiness and being cleansed, being forgiven, walking in the spirit together in love out of a selflessness. This kind of sensual indulgence, it includes a lustful glance, cherishing an unclean desire, an utterance of a foul expression. Jesus was clear in the Sermon on the Mount that if you have Lust in your heart for someone you've committed adultery and that which might not be known to others is fully known by God. He sees all things and these are things to be repented of. It's what's being sold in our culture. Our culture is selling it because sensuality and self-gratification sells. Charles Hatton Spurgeon, he said that the sensual imaginations are the very maggots that swarm within a corrupt soul to cleanse the maggots, right, within the church and within the heart. Verse 20, idolatry and sorcery. I'm going to group those together as a second category. These are false religious sins. They're sins that are going on actually all the time. You say, isn't idolatry more of a tribal cultural sin? Isn't it a sin of ancient history? Isn't it a sin that isn't really something we're part of here? Well, I'd make the case that Idolatry and sorcery or witchcraft are both sins that are very common in even 21st century church culture, things that need to be rejected. It, at, core, at its core is the refusal to worship the one true God. If we were to take time in Romans 121 where it talks about people being, they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, they're exchanging what is natural for unnatural, that kind of sin digression boils down in verse 21 to this. It says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The reason people fall prey to idolatry is because first and foremost, when they know of God in nature, They don't worship God and give thanks to him. Instead of having a heart of gratitude to God, they begin to worship the world in naturalism. And people do it all the time. And they do it here all the time. People worship nature all the time. They might not carve an idol. Some people do. A lot of people don't. But they're worshiping nature instead of being grateful to God. 
The temptation when you go on vacation is to say, I need to relax. I need the nature to relax me. The right attitude and the satisfying one is to say, thank you, Lord, for creation. Thank you, Lord, for giving me this world to enjoy that is your world for me to inhabit, to have rule over under God, and to enjoy, to worship God. He boils, Paul boils idolatry down to coveting. You ever covet someone else's stuff? You ever want something? That's idolatry. It's desires taking rule over your heart. Sorcery is the same thing. Instead of trusting God, it's being a master manipulator where you want to harness some kind of power to manipulate your circumstances to bring about your own ends. It's important to recognize that these are the works of the flesh. They're just like the works of the flesh I've already mentioned. Idolatry is worshiping other gods, and sorcery is a secret tampering with the powers of evil. Both are a substitution for spiritual power. It's rampant. The fascination with spiritism and witchcraft is very, very pervasive, especially in the movie culture. I try to avoid previews when I go to a movie that I think I can brave to go to. Typically, it's about 20 minutes of sorcery that goes on, by and large. It's because people are into themselves. They're looking for the the secret sauce of how to manipulate and rule their own circumstances and world with some other dimension, some other power, whether they're trying to find it inside or find it through demonic worship. It's marketed all over the place. Satan's first lie or series of lies in the conversation he had with Eve is this. Eve said, I I can't eat of this fruit. I can't touch it. And Satan said, you will not die. Eve said, I'll die. She said, you won't die. God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. That's what witchcraft promises. I've spoken to people. Even early in my Christian life, I was friends with a guy in my youth group who one time I was sitting with and I was trying to disciple and he began to share his heart about how he was part of some sort of demonic cult club where they would dance around the fire. I mean, some of you have talked to these people and they see things and experience things and there are empowerments that are supernatural and scary. But that's the source of that kind of sorcery is the same as someone who's setting up an idol of coveting something that they shouldn't have where they're trying to manipulate circumstances to get it. These are all sourced in the flesh People do it religiously. People will worship man-made images. They'll kiss things. They'll bow before things. They'll worship images of saints, supposed saints or holy relics that they think will give them power. And none of those things are real spirituality. And actually, all of those doing those things is sin. It's the sin of idolatry. On a deeper and more personal level, people will elevate their spouse. They'll elevate their children. They'll elevate a friend. They'll elevate a father, a mother, a sister, a brother more than the Lord. And if we love those people more than we love the Lord, that can be a subtle but also satanic form of idolatry. I remember talking to one family member one time, and it was very sad to me. I said to this person, would you be willing to have your wife sacrificed if she was, she was being martyred? If, uh, if you denied the faith, would you deny the faith if it would save your wife? And the person sadly said, uh, yes, I would, because then I could just repent of it and, and switch things up. And that never sat well with me. I I thought, you know, we need to be sold out for Jesus Christ at the risk of even our family. Witchcraft, like idolatry, is both overt and subtle. People were doing these things. You remember the the discussion in uh, 1 Corinthians 10 where people were eating meat sacrificed to idols and people were concerned with that. And the weaker brothers were unwilling to eat meat that was part of a demonic ceremonial service. Ultimately, Paul had to cut it straight and say, I don't want to imply what, pa- that what pagans sacrifice, that they're not offering it to demons because they are, not to God. I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't have it both ways, Paul is saying. For the stronger, they would be able to eat meat sacrificed to idols, but he was saying that idol worship was real and it is demonic nevertheless. 
Well, there's many contemporary forms of uh, cultic worship. There's uh, occult practice, black magic, Satan worship, superstition. There's witchcraft. There's tampering with all these powers. And all these things were forbidden, strictly forbidden in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 18. And also within the church, they pull people away. But there is a form that is more subtle that I just want to bring up, and that is that witchcraft, or the word sorcery here, is the Greek word pharmakeia, where we get the word drug or narcotic or pharmacy, pharmaceuticals. And the pharmaceutical drug culture is one that we should pay attention to. Even I was hearing about an article where college students are um, being ignored and left to themselves under the pressure of performance to use speed and amphetamines to try to heighten their senses and to be able to pull things off that they couldn't do otherwise. These are disassociating drugs where your mind is disassociated with your body and you're able to go certain places and do certain things. That's a form of witchcraft. This also creeps into the homes where parents have pressures where they don't parent sometimes and They put their kids on amphetamines and things to try to control them. We have to be careful with this. We have to analyze this. We have to understand that we live in a culture of addictions where people want to escape or curb behaviors. Well, the third category is sins of temper, sins of anger. Look at verses 20b and 21a. So sins of anger, beginning with the word enmity, enmity. All of these words, this next list, which is a broad list within this list, are words dealing with hate, hate, hate within the church. Some of these first categories could be the sins of the world, things that are happening out there. Well, look at these sins in terms of what happens sometimes in here. These are community dividing sins or social sins. Enmity has a same Greek derivative of the word that could be translated enemy. If you are at enmity with someone, ultimately that destructive attitude will create for you an enemy. These are eight examples that break down personal relationships. The New English Bible put it this way. There are quarrels, a contentious temper, envy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, or temper tantrums and canvassing for office, dissensions, party intrigues, and jealousies. This is what belongs as an attitude of the mind that defies and challenges other people. It's enmities. And six of the eight words here are plural. These are actions. These are expressions of attitudes. The attitudes are more in the singular, and the actions are in the plural, but all these eight words overlap one another and are basically saying the same thing. Hate divides the church community. These are the vices that break it down. And we should suspect that they happen in the church. We should probably suspect that this was happening even in the Galatian community. You say, well, was the Galatian church divided? We don't know about interpersonal divisions. There's no mention of that that I see in the book of Galatians like other places in the New Testament. No names are really called out. I guess Peter's name was called out. Paul's name was called out. But um, interpersonally, I'm not sure there was stuff happening in the church. There were divisions between visiting preachers, visiting pastors. There was a division between Paul, who was the missionary apostle who had established the church at Galatia. He was having to defend his testimony. He was having to say, as we've covered earlier, weeks and weeks ago when we started this series, that his gospel came directly to him from Christ. So the gospel of grace is the true gospel. They were denying that. There were Judaizing heretics who were going against Paul, trying to divide the church, trying to get people to hate Paul. So the doctrinal breakdown was really also a relational breakdown, and such is the case when doctrine and gospel breaks down, typically relations break down too. So were they divided? Was there a faction? Well, there was a deep unhappiness with Paul's teaching and an eagerness for the church there then to go back to some kind of self-styled orthodoxy. And the way for a church to flounder, a way for the church to shrink, is to fall prey to these sin categories, to flounder, uh, for Christians to be at odds at such a level so that any meaningful relationship within the church would be out of the question. So whatever uh, disagreement was going on here, if you approach disagreements along these lines, along this path of enmity, strife, jealousy, and anger, if this is the path that's never defensible within the church. Second word is strife that's listed here. It speaks of 
discord, sowing discord, division, having a quarrelsome spirit, certain people who cherish to dislike everybody, certain people who are in their clique and they don't want you in their clique. I, I had never looked up or thought about where the word clique comes from. Anybody ever do that? I do these things. This is what I get paid to do is just Google things, you know, during the week. Um, but it's from a French, uh, it's a French or- origin. You can check me on it. Click, I don't know how to speak French, but it basically is the word for a, um, a bracket in a door or, or the lock of a door. And it's a word picture of shutting the door and shutting people out. I don't think it's onomatopoeic like click, you know, we're shutting the door, but it is an interesting way to think about what clicks are. It's, it's shutting others out like you're latching the door. This is someone who wants to pick a fight or foster a disagreement. He's filled with hatred and envy and can't bear to know that others are prospering more than he or she is. It's the desire to drag them down to their level. This is so ironic to me because Christians today are those who stand for a gospel that's exclusive, not inclusive. It's exclusive in, the ter- in terms of world religions. It's saying the world religions are not the way. Only Jesus is the way. It's inclusive in terms of all can come in. All need to be called to repent, believe, and follow Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The, one that, the only one that can satisfy your soul. It's, it's inclusive in that way, but it's exclusive in terms of its precision that this is the only way, truth, and life to come to God. It's through Christ. And that's called hate speech now, Right? That's hate speech because you're hating people. You're marginalizing people. You're calling people out for their sexual preferences, for their unnatural desires. You're hating them as Christians, and that's not hate speech at all. This is actually love speech because we want people to be delivered from these sin vices. And what's so ironic to me is that what's called hate speech by the world is really love speech and rescue speech that delivers people from hating each other. Ever think about that? This is the descriptions and descriptors of hate. This is the disunifying awful that happens in your soul and in your life and in your community that only can be rectified by talking about the narrow road gospel and talking about Christ, which is love speech. Galatians 3.28, if you'll flip back, I mean, it's such a profound picture of unity in the church. There's neither Jew nor Greek. That was a big, big deal. That would be like the North and the South. There is neither Caucasian or African-American. It, it, it's not a deal. It's not an issue. There's neither Jew nor Greek. Titus, come into the church. You don't need to be circumcised to come in. Just enjoy table fellowship with me now. There's neither slave nor free. There is no social class. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, 14 through 16 says the same thing. The dividing law, the the barrier wall between Jew and Gentile has been broken down in the gospel. Well, the next word, jealousy. This is from the Greek word zeal or zealos. Zeal can be good in the Bible. You can have a zeal for righteousness, a zeal for Christ, a zeal as Christ had for his father's house to be holy. But zeal in this sense and energy it's, it's an energy that's fueled from a human ego where you're wanting to be consumed with self-glory. The only person who can be consumed with his own glory righteously is who? God. But people get consumed for their own glory and they don't even know it. They have hateful resentment for people that leads to the next term, which is fits of anger. You get so jealous that rage fills your heart and you have outbursts of anger with a bad temper. The Greek word thumoi thumoi is here um, representing wrath. It's wrath. It's a sudden, unrestrained expression of hostility with little or no provocation or justification. It just... Where somebody just blows up. The C4 is ignited and boom. Aristotle on his uh, work on ethics, he compared this to dogs. Dogs are on my mind lately. Obviously, I've got two big dogs that were puppies this big. Now they're out of control big. Aristotle said, quote, they, dogs bark representing this even if there's just but a knock at the door before the dog looks to see if it's a friend. Just... 
It's an endless variety of sins where people want to get ahead of each other at other people's expense. It's uncontrolled anger leaving people in its wake. And anger does that. It leaves wreckage and carnage. Charles Spurgeon, again, can get away with saying stuff I can't, so I'll just quote him. He says, he says, quoting people, but I have a quick temper. He goes, are you a Christian? If so, you are bound to master this evil force or it will ruin you. If you're a saint of God to the very highest degree in all, but in this one point, it will pull you down. At any moment, an angry spirit might make you say or do that which would cause you lifelong sorrow. Right? One outburst of anger, one thrown punch, one misplaced word or moment can be so destructive. Rivalries and selfish ambition are next. Rivalries is the idea of being competitive. It's that you're always trying to win. It's where Socrates, he said, it's people who are pained by a friend's successes. It's a self-seeker. It's someone who's creating division in his community or in his church or in his family who just loves contention and is wrapped up in his or her own morbid sensitiveness. Someone who does not focus on the good of others but grasps for honor and praise. Someone who opposes all Forms of authority, wanting preeminence, not being second. I'm not sure exactly who I'm quoting here, but it's someone who creates his own religion, writes his own Bible, or thinks out his own gospel. It's a wolfish craving to impoverish and pull others down for the mere sake of it. It's an acrid form of undiluted hate. It's to murder a man's best life. Well, then you have, finally to wrap up these Words that describe hatred, dissensions, divisions, and going into verse 21, envy. They can all be grouped together because they're all kindred. It's divisions. The word divisions here is heresies, where we get the word heresies. It means, actually, it's a noun form of making a choice. It's the choice to divide. It's speaking factions. It's it's being part of a, a party. It's having a party spirit. It's following one particular personality as they did in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Christ. Paul said, look, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you because I don't want a stake in this game at all. It's breaking human relationships, which is the implacable enemy of divine grace. This kind of work within the church is satanic. Division is satanic within the church. And it's contra to the gospel. Animosities, as one person put it, between individual groups, they continue to fester and grow long after the original cause of conflict has passed. Listen to this. Feuds of old-time mountain clans that last for generations, even nation-to-nation hostility that lasts for century are, centuries are born by these sins, right? They just go on and on and on and on. Sins that establish and lead to a destructive way of life. Let's go to our last category. Verse 21 again. Last category, drunkenness and orgies and things like these. This is the bookend to where Paul began. It's more than literary style, we know. And if you've been part of alcoholism in your own life or alcoholic families, you've seen the destructiveness of an out-of-control use of alcohol where people are given over to drunkenness. And drunkenness can lead to all these forms of hate and all these forms of sensuality, even such that can be broader and more public than what happens privately. It emphasizes sin's vicious cycle, a cycle that cannot be broken, a cycle that no one can escape except by the free grace of Christ alone. Drunkenness and carousing, it's a specific reveling characterized by pagan worship. There was paganism where people would group together in drunkenness and in sensuality, and they would do this. And many Gentile converts were saved out of this, and people in our 21st century culture are saved out of these kinds of sins, sins that are committed in mass, sins that are not just private, not just personal, not just kept in the home, but are public where people say, I don't care anymore. It's pleasures that degenerate into debauchery where it's a lifestyle of unconstrained sin. There's no moral normalcy going on. 
Romans 13, 13, and 1 Peter 4, 3 also talk about this. It's wild parties. That if people are given over to a wildness like this, they are not of Christ. And if, if you are given over to a sin behavior and pattern like this, you're not in the Holy Spirit. You're not. Or if you've strayed from Christ in this way, you need to repent and begin to walk by the Holy Spirit again. It's very serious, as are all of these. Idolatry, sorcery, anger, they're all lumped together. And that's why Paul ends it by saying things like these. He's talking about all of these sins and so much more, etc., and etc., and etc. The list goes on. Before leaving this, I, I want to just point out what I think is very important regarding this list. A lot of times we'll just evaluate ourselves in terms of verses 20, 19 to 21, and then we'll just crawl out of the church, right? Say, man, this was bad, you know. But we need to think in terms of the church health. You need to get your head up as well and say, I don't want to be part of these sins because when I sin, I'm affecting the whole body. When I'm at enmity with someone or making people an enemy, I'm hurting the whole body. If I'm involved in private pornography or if you're involved in drunkenness or you're hurting your family, you're hurting other people, you're hurting the whole body. If you're dividing the church, you're hurting the whole body. These are community sins that need to be repented of. There's also a sense in which we have to be careful not to judge other people who are involved in these sins because All of us have been involved in these sins at varying degrees, at varying points in our lives, whether in our hearts or actions. The sins that are religious, quote-unquote, and then the sins of the world are all equal sins. Selfishness, envy, jealousy, and factions, things that happen in church community that people know about are no better or worse than non-religious sins like immorality and drunkenness, things that supposedly happen outside of the church, though they happen in both. This list shows us that God does not make those kinds of distinctions. It's amazing. It's amazing if you look at the sin list, even of 1 Corinthians 6, it's talking about, you know, the unnaturalness of homosexuality, but it also includes in there things like drunkenness and anger, pride, If you're given over to a sin and not repentant of a sin, then you're not inheriting the kingdom of God. These distinctions are ones that are commonly made. God doesn't make this distinction. Seeing sex and drink is more sinful than jealousy and ambition. The tendency of non-religious people may be to label flaws of someone else's religious sins as worse, while religious people um, see non-religious sins as becoming That which is beyond the pale, well, that person will never become a Christian because he or she is doing that. Well, whatever camp you're in, you should see someone else's sinful nature as to what they can be redeemed from. And you need to look at your own sin and your own issues and your own life that you need to repent of and battle through. Paul's summary and warning here, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God is verse 21, right at the end, right at the end, just like. Jesus' triumphal entry. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That crowd was not believing in Jesus. They were wanting Jesus to be someone that he was not coming as in that moment. They wanted him to be a political, overthrowing, dictating king. He wanted Je- they wanted Jesus to fix their problems. They wanted Jesus to be their magic genie in the bottle. Come solve our issue. They weren't looking inside going, be my redeemer. We know that because palm branches turned into shouts of crucify him, fist raised. The warning is based on the list here, those who do such things, not entering the kingdom of God. It shouldn't be dismissed as inconsequential. The Galatians needed to repent of these sins or the kingdom would not be there and Anyone who's marked by these sins will face final judgment in this same way. Galatians 6, 8, if you sow in the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. There's a Puritan named William Perkins. He said these vices are a mirror to reflect the corruption of our own hearts. It's alarming. The, The sin list is alarming, but what's more alarming is where these sins lead or where they do not lead. 
It's all-encompassing. It's a severe warning. It's such a warning that many true believers will doubt their salvation as they look at a list like this saying, well, I've done things like these, so obviously I'm not inheriting the kingdom of God. But let me encourage you, as I was encouraged once as a, I remember being at a bank, uh, you know, and, and running into the, the dean of my seminary. It was the dean of my seminary, and it was his wife that came up to me, and we were talking, and I was just sharing with her my heart as a young 22-year-old single guy and, and just sharing a concern I had. And, and she said, look, if you weren't concerned about that, that would be the concern. I'll never forget that. She was mothering me, and it was beautiful. And it's that kind of spiritual parenting that we all need to hear. Listen, you're all sinners. You're all co-strugglers with sins like these. But if you don't care about your struggle, if you don't repent of this struggle, if you don't bring these struggles to God, these violations to God, these vices to God, that's when you're in trouble. It's a hard heart that says, oh, I got it. I can figure it out in my own flesh. I can manipulate it. I can religious it. I can ceremonialize this. I can fix it. That's the hardness of heart that you need to be warned against who hasn't done some of these things. What Christian can claim that they've never committed a single one of these sins and being a Christian. If this, this was the basis for entrance, no one would enter the kingdom of God. Well, where's the hope? Look at verse 21 one more time. The hope is in the original language here. It's uh, those who do such things. The word practice or process is here. Those who practice these things. It's an indicative durative. It's the idea that if you have an ongoing lifestyle and practice of these sin categories, then that is showing that you are not yet filled by the Holy Spirit. You are not yet regenerate. You are not yet transformed and thus barred from the kingdom of God at this point. It's not the occasional sin of a believer that this is speaking to. It's the habitual indulgence of this sin that reveals someone to be an enemy of God. And I have to be that severe and at least that strong to wake some of you up. When I was a 17-year-old sitting in church, I needed to hear the straight word of God to say, oh, I'm not yet saved. And then I was saved. And guess what? I still struggled, but it wasn't a life-dominating struggle anymore. It was subdued by the Holy Spirit. That's where we need to be, walking in the Spirit, not in the flesh. So if you are someone who finds yourself in an unrepentant, habitual indulgence of these sins, repent, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. He is the sole source of your salvation. Jesus came offering the kingdom of God and he offers the kingdom of God to you. Repent and believe if this represents your life. For all of us, we should yield to the work of the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, examine me, grow me, make me more like Jesus every day.